Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin. My co-host, Bruce Kelly, is not around this week, and uh, I hope he's enjoying some well-deserved time off. We are talking today, when I say we, I mean me, with Gary Zimmerman. He is the founder and chief executive of an operation called Max My Interest, which is a a business I kind of came across uh, a few years ago. We had a really nice conversation, and full disclosure, I actually put some of my savings into this uh, this uh, cash management platform for a while. And it, to me, it's an interesting business model because it's obviously, uh, I feel very interest rate dependent. People have a lot more savings when rates are high, maybe, or they have savings when rates are low and they're just not making any money off it. But Max, my interest is kind of designed to, uh, not kind of, but it is designed to help uh savers get the maximum yield available in an FDIC insured account. But I'm going to let Gary explain that to you. And we're also going to get into a lot of uh, some talk about the Fed policy, monetary policy, interest rates, where that's going, and uh, all that good stuff. So Gary, how are you doing? Thank you for being here, sir. Jeff, thank you for having me. And what a fascinating time to be talking about Fed policy and the economy and to be covering investments. This is a, a Really interesting moment in history. Yeah, this is like the Super Bowl for for you, right? You got uh, you got uh, inflation high, the Fed raising rates to combat that, and uh, you've got a platform that that kind of is suited for that. Can we start by let's talk about Max My Interest first of all? Let's talk about the history of it and and exactly how it is working and and really how it's works for financial advisors. Sure. Um, well, thank you, Jeff. Um, well. Max was built um, as an intelligent cash management platform to help individual investors more effectively manage their money, to keep it fully FDIC insured, to keep it same-day liquid and safe and sound in their own bank accounts, Um, and as a side effect of all of that, also to earn the highest yield possible in the market. And um, I I feel very fortunate that we've been able to do all of those things. Along the way, we figured out that this was also a better cash management solution for financial advisors. And so we've been building out solutions and integrations that enable financial advisors to leverage this tool to simultaneously make their clients better off um, and grow AUM organically at the same time. So it's been a really, really exciting journey. Where this all started, though, I think is actually particularly interesting because um, the concept for Max really grew out of the financial crisis. I was a, a banker working at one of the you know, big four banks in the country, and um, I sat there in March of 2009, and the bank had a near-death experience. Mm-hmm. And it caused me to question, you know, where was I keeping my cash, and was it as safe as it should be? And at the time, the bank pitched me on um, what I would call a brokered deposit solution. You often see these with brokerage firms where they tell you, oh, don't worry, you can keep all of your cash with us, we're going to farm it out. Uh, and get you enough FDIC insurance coverage. But when I studied it in detail, because I I guess I'm a little bit nerdy and I like to go deep on things, it turned out that this solution that had been pitched as safe um, and liquid was actually potentially neither safe nor liquid. That there were like several fundamental flaws in that old line solution that brokerage firms have been using for, for decades. And so Max was really sort of my attempt to create a better way to manage cash. Let's talk about how it works practically does now do people put their money on your platform and you get them the best interest rate you can or how does that work so the the first and most important thing is that we never touch any money um, that's really important there are a lot of um, you know either these brokerage 
or broker deposit solutions or other fintechs that have come around and said, oh, come put your money with us and then we'll create an omnibus account and we'll farm it out. And the problem mm -hmm. with all of those solutions is that you never want to let someone else stand between you and your money, right? All of your cash should be titled in your own name, held in your own bank accounts. And that way you always have direct access to it and full liquidity. And this was actually one of the flaws that I saw in the broker deposit uh, systems that broker dealers have been using for years, which is that if the originating institution in that system goes under, you lose access to all of your money. And you may not think that that's a very likely scenario, but here I was working for one of the four largest banks in the country, and they were in exactly that position um, with their stock trading at 97 cents a share. And so, um, you know, and we're seeing the same thing in crypto markets. Now, crypto has never been a secure investment. It's, in my view, not even an investment because there's no underlying value. Um, it's a speculation, but you know, all of the people who put their money with FTX and now they can't get it back because FTX is the intermediary. And if they go under, you can stand in line with all the other creditors. So that was sort of the first fundamental tenant is you should keep your money in your own bank accounts. But that doesn't mean that the bank where you do your day-to-day -day banking is necessarily um, well positioned or even capable of delivering the best yield in the market. And so the whole idea of Max, my interest was built around a really simple premise, which is uh, you're not going to switch banks. Now, that's kind of a funny thing to say because everyone is out there trying to get you to switch banks. Our belief is that you are, you're not going to switch banks. Um, the chances are your bank does a pretty good job of keeping your cash safe and providing you with a credit card and a mortgage and all the other banking services that you require. But the challenge is that they don't have the cost structure to be the most competitive on the most commodified aspect of your, of your balances, which are your savings. And so what we've done with Max is made it really easy for you to open up multiple um, new bank accounts in your own name um, and spread your cash across multiple banks so that you can take advantage of uh, both increased FDIC insurance coverage and higher yield at the same time. And then what Max helps you do is actively manage your own bank accounts so that it helps you monitor rates. And whenever we see an opportunity for you to earn higher yield or be more fully insured, uh, we simply pass along your instructions to your banks and then your banks move your money from you know, your account to one bank to your account or another bank. And in doing so, you're always earning the highest yield. What's the minimum investment that you can put on this platform? A dollar. Uh, we, okay. we don't impose any minimum balance requirements. You know, our view is it's really none of our business, but most of the people using this platform have sort of six to seven figures in cash. So we might have some customers that are 50K and we have some customers that are 10 million, but most of the people using this platform have 200,000 in cash or 800,000 or a million and a half. Um, and so they're looking for more FDIC coverage so that they can sleep soundly at night. But they also realize that that yield is meaningful. And at today's rates, you know, for a customer with half a million of cash, we're helping them earn an extra $20,000 a year of incremental return. Is there a maximum you can put in this and still get FDIC insurance? Um, there's no maximum um, per se on the platform. To be insured, to be fully insured, um, the FDIC limit is $250,000 per depositor, per account type, per bank charter. Um, now that sounds really confusing, but to, to break it down, you know, if I have an account, I can get $250,000 of coverage per bank. If my wife has an account, she can get $250,000. And if we have a set of joint accounts, we can each get another $250,000. So if, if I open eight bank accounts as a couple, I can actually get $8 million of FDIC coverage. And what kind of yields are we talking about? 
Uh, well, the yields are pretty compelling. So uh, today here we are at the beginning of December. The Just to put all this in perspective, the national savings average, that is the, the average amount that a, that a bank pays on a savings account today, is 24 basis points. That's 0.24%. Now, that's a lot higher than it was a year ago. A year ago, it was six basis points. Um, but that's still not a lot, not a lot of money. And you may have seen advertised some of the um, you know leading online banks in the country. They're paying rates as high as three percent. Today, mm-hmm. our top rate is three point nine one percent, so almost four percent yield mm-hmm. um, in a same day liquid FDIC insured bank account. We think that's pretty compelling. How do you collect your fees? So we believe that we believe really strongly in transparency. So we don't bury our fees. They're very explicit. Um, we currently charge a fee of two basis points per quarter. So that's two one hundredths of one percent. That means twenty dollars per hundred thousand dollars um, in deposit, and it's just deducted from your checking account quarterly. So you know, for uh, you know, for a customer with a million dollars of cash, let's say today on our platform, they'd probably earn about thirty-seven thousand dollars a year in uh, in interest, and and they would pay us eight hundred dollars a year. As I alluded to in the beginning of this, we, uh, you and I have been have known each other for a while, and I think we first started talking right after he launched, and we were still in the wake of the financial crisis, and so there have been some periods uh, that you've been running Max My Interest that probably haven't been that great for for your business model, right? I mean, were were people coming to you when when you're you know you were paying yields of you know, a few basis points when interest rates were so low? Um, actually, it's been great all throughout. Um, and the reason is that we've always been able to deliver the best rates in the market. So when Max launched, we were in a zero interest rate environment. Um, now, what did that mean? It meant that the Fed funds rate was in that zero to 25 basis point range. But the online banks were paying between 70 and 90 basis points then. And the reason that the online banks can afford to pay more is they don't have the overhead of brick and mortar branches. So they're able to pay higher rates. Um, And then interest rates started to rise. And um, ultimately, at the peak, we got up to 2.71%, which we were pretty excited about because the highest prevailing rate at the time um, was about two and a quarter. So we were delivering 46 basis points of incremental risk-free return over and above banks like Marcus or Amex or Ally. Um, And we were pretty excited about that, that through our platform, we were able to help clients obtain preferential rates that they couldn't get anywhere else. Then the pandemic hit, rates went to zero again, and the Fed, uh, between the Fed and and Congress flooded the market with $5 trillion of new money, um, which is what's causing all the inflation we're experiencing today. And um, rates went back to zero, and the rates on our platform went down as well, but not nearly as much as the rest of the market. And so we were still generating uh, what we we call alpha, incremental risk-free return. And in fact, we've done some backtesting analysis. You can find this on our website, maxmyinterest.com. And we've been able to demonstrate that over the last one and three year periods, we were able to deliver 21 basis points higher yield than a basket of the leading online banks. So even when rates were low, we were still outperforming. Today, we're delivering 91 basis points more than that same basket of online banks. So regardless of the interest rate environment, we've always been helping clients earn more. I think the big difference Jeff, is that people care less about cash when rates are below 1%. And we found that as soon as rates went above 1%, the sort of flood of calls from clients and advisors uh, really picked up uh, to the point where today we're signing up five or six new advisory firms every day. And we don't do any advertising. This is just all inbound. 
um, because we think we built the single best cash solution in the market. You say you're signing up advisory firms. Is Are you working through advisory firms or do advisory firms send their clients to you? Yeah, they, they send their clients to us. And uh, we, so we don't, um, it's interesting, actually, we don't, we don't pay financial advisors for distribution. This is not a, like a, a marketed product um, in that way. It, it's just a service that advisors can avail themselves of. And what we've been doing is building integrations into the market. So mm-hmm. um, just last week, we launched with Wealthbox. We were already integrated with Redtail. We're integrated with Orion and Money Guide Pro and Morningstar Bile Accounts. And so we've been building in integrations into the ecosystem that financial advisors use so that they can make this an integrated part of their practice. And what's in it for the advisor, as I mentioned, they don't get paid. What's in it for them are two things. Number one, um, they're able to deliver a better solution to their client than anyone has ever shown them. And that builds a lot of client trust. Um, and the other thing is that um, Max helps identify held away cash. And this is actually really important because you know the, the typical high net worth household keeps about 22% of their assets in cash. And that number shocks advisors because they look at the portfolio and they say, no, I manage my portfolio to only 3% cash because I don't want cash drag. And that makes perfect sense. But what it means is there's a big disconnect between what clients are telling their advisors in terms of what their risk tolerance is and what their actual risk tolerance is. And routinely we'll have client advisors who come to us and say, well, you know, I've got a good client for this. They have 200K in cash. And then that client starts using Max and it turns out they have 800K in cash. And so with, with client consent, we're able to give advisors visibility into those held away assets. And that in turn leads to better, more holistic planning discussions and often leads to some of that cash being redeployed into higher beta strategies. So it is an interesting business model in that you your fees are two basis points a quarter, regardless of where interest rates are, regardless of the kind of yields that you're paying. But I would imagine in a higher interest rate environment, I think you already said this, that there are there is more money coming to platforms like yours, right? Yeah, I mean, we're, I guess one way to look at it is we charge way too little for our service. So uh, when we launched, our fee was set at about 10% of the spread, right? 10% of the incremental yield. Um, today, our fee is, uh, you know, maybe 2% or 3% of that incremental yield. Um, and the interesting thing is, we charge about half as much as even the lowest cost money market funds, yet we deliver better yield with greater liquidity and, and better safety. So, um, you know, what we try to do is just make people better off. And the whole platform is designed to simultaneously make customers better off, advisors better off, and banks better off all at the same time. Let's talk about uh, kind of monetary policy a little bit here. You can you can be a little bit of an analyst on the on Fed policy. How how did we get to this point? I mean, we're at we're at a, a place that's you know some could say if you got cash, it's a dream time to be, but is it really? Uh, we're dealing with inflation still hovering near a forty year high. The Fed is has been raising interest rate, although interest rates, although it's said it's going to kind of slow the pace of interest rate hikes, but it's still going to be raising. What's what's your take on where we are as far as monetary policy and interest rates in this country? Well, I think it's it's important to put all of this in historical perspective, which is that interest rates are not terribly high right now. I mean, it might feel that way if you're trying to get a mortgage or you know, lease a car or something like that, because interest rates have been so artificially low for so long. But if you look back in history, we're kind of at an average interest rate right now. Um, so I think it's important to have that context. A lot of people who 
haven't lived through three or four market cycles may, may think that these are high rates. Um, it's just that we've come from an historically abnormal position of, of near zero rates. But all of all of this all of this policy, and it's it's both Fed policy, but also fiscal policy in terms of all the spending bills that have been passed through Congress, has a real impact. Um, and it's important to, you know, these are numbers on a page, but these are also human lives. Um, and when we go through periods of high inflation, um, the elderly suffer, and people with low incomes suffer particularly. Um, right? Uh, you know, if you have a uh, large equities portfolio, there'll be ups and downs, but in general, equities will keep pace with inflation because fundamentally the revenue that these companies bring in will keep pace with inflation. If you've got residential real estate, um, inflation may be neutral to even positive for you because the nominal value of your property goes up and the real value of your debt goes down. Um, so for people with assets, inflation is you know annoying, um, but non-fatal. Uh, but for people uh, with low income, uh, and, and, and no meaningful investable assets, inflation is a complete disaster because, well, you know, the minimum wage may have gone up by 5% if the cost of, of, you know, food and gas for your car and rent has gone up by 15% or 20% in the last two years. Um, you know, th these are people with very little cushion to begin with. So I think there are some really interesting policy ramifications for what we've done here. Um, so what have we done here? Um, I think, and it's not intended to be a political statement, I'm actually an independent, so I, I don't pick sides here, but what have we done here is we've been fiscally irresponsible. Um, I remember uh, just before two elections ago, I passed by the national debt clock in Times Square uh, in New York. And um, the national debt was just under 20 trillion. It was 19 point something trillion, which is an awful lot of trillion. Um, and uh, then I pulled out my phone and I pulled up the stock market and the Dow was at 19,000 and something. And I tweeted something very clever, like, which will come first, you know, Dow 20,000 or debt 20 trillion. Um, well, fast forward today and the Dow has gone from 20,000 to 34,000. And you might say, wow, I feel really rich. Look how much the stock market went up. But guess what? Our national debt in that same time period went from 20 trillion to 31 trillion. So, my question is, have we actually really gained anything or have all we done is just, you know, inflated away the value of our dollar, um, right? Our debt is going up and the stock market's going up, but it's kind of an illusion. And the thing that's so interesting to me is that humans are fundamentally bad at understanding the difference between real or nominal, right? So you said, oh, gee, isn't this a great time to hold cash? Well, not necessarily, right? If the inflation rate is greater than the interest rate you're earning, then you're actually losing real value every day. Most advisors have always been told, this is a mutual fund, take it or leave it. But generic investment options aren't good enough to meet the evolving expectations of today's clients. Helios Tools solves the customization challenge. It's a tech-driven process developed by Helios's team of investment experts and quantitative researchers that allows advisors to build and customize model portfolios based on unique client needs and preferences in just a few clicks. Find out how Helios Tools can help you create a better client experience and set your firm apart in a cost-effective, scalable way. Visit www.heliosdriven.com forward slash Helios tools to learn more. Where do you see uh, rates going? I know the Fed has said they're going to 
slow the pace of hikes, but what's your kind of prognosis here? The Fed has raised rates very quickly, um, and they had to, um, because the Fed had to build credibility. Um, you know, there was a long period of time where the Fed said that inflation was transitory. That turned out not to be the case. Um, and so inflation is very much self-perpetuating. In other words, the very expectation or, or self-fulfilling, which is the very expectation of inflation actually causes inflation. Um, and what I mean by that is if we're in, you know, if, if we start talking about inflationary times, then employees say, oh, gee, there's inflation, I need a raise. And as soon as there's a raise, that drives up input costs for companies. So then they have to raise their pricing and then prices go up and then people need a raise again. And, and this cycle feeds upon itself. And so in order for businesses to plan, you, you know, a business has to plan, are we expecting 10% inflation or 2% inflation? And that's going to impact the decisions I make about new investment and hiring and everything. Um, and so the Fed had to come out very strong and be credible that they were willing to raise rates as high as it took in order to get inflation under control. Um, as of the latest data here, as we said at the beginning of December, it looks like inflation is starting to come down. Um, now, we still have inflation. So inflation coming down means that I'm, I, I've stepped less on the accelerator, but I'm still accelerating, right? I think what the Fed has telegraphed is that they're going to start to reduce the pace of increases. So their foot's still on the accelerator, but they're not flooring it anymore. They're going to ease off the, the gas a little bit, but they're still speeding up. And I think that's prudent because, you know, since COVID, since, since the, the pandemic began in February or March of 2020, if you look at U.S. bank deposits, which is a pretty good sort of proxy for M1 and, and liquidity, they've gone from $13.3 trillion up to 18.1 trillion. Just think about that for a moment. We printed nearly $5 trillion of new money and injected it into the money supply and expected that that wasn't going to <laughs> impact the economy. And of course it did, right? That's a massive 36% <laughs> yeah. growth right. in money supply in, in a matter of months. And that's all got to trickle through somewhere. And then if you look at, at how the CPI has grown in that time period, um, in that in that same you know, two-year period, we've had cumulative 12.4% inflation. You know, inflation is caused by a scenario where growth in money supply exceeds the growth in the economic output of a country. And in this case, our money supply grew 36% and, and prices are only up 12%. So we've got a long way to go still. Um, and I think, I think this inflationary period is going to be painful. It's going to continue to be painful. Um, and I don't think we're near the end of it. So I, I think the Fed is going to have to uh, keep rates high for a prolonged period of time, and, and anyone who's hoping for rates to go back to zero anytime soon, um, I think is I think it's wishful thinking. But but Gary, isn't this all that magical uh, wand of modern monetary theory that's supposed to mean you could just spend your way out of any corner? Well, whoever said that modern monetary theory was correct? It's a theory. Um, and the theory is the theory is, has been proven incorrect. So no, you, you can't. Um, I think you know for a a big gov for for someone who is a proponent of sort of big government and spending, it, it's a very appealing um, theory, right? And and so far the United States has sort of been blessed by the fact that we are still the world's reserve currency, and so we can print more dollars, and people will still buy our debt, and there's a balance of trade. To be settled there, um, but I think it's very dangerous. Um, and if you look at if you look at our our national debt, 
we're actually at the point where we can't afford to have interest rates that are much higher. Um, right? We, we run the risk of actually putting ourselves into, into a pretty precarious position. So, you know, people have talked a lot about the Fed and look how much money the Fed printed, which is true. But we also passed about $2 trillion or $3 trillion of spending bills as well. And, you know, if, if you have, you know, 10 trillion of cash in the system and the government prints another trillion dollars, that's just inflation. That That's just going to move money from one person's pocket to another person's pocket. And unfortunately, uh, for the most part, the, the net effect of all of this inflation is widening the wealth gap in our country. And, you know, if, if history is any guide, that's likely to lead to political and social instability. Well, that's cheery. How about... Um... <laughs> How about a uh, the outlook for a recession? I mean, people are dancing around this, mostly politicians, but is there any scenario you see where we don't end up in a recession? Definitely. Um, I think we actually need a recession, but I'm not convinced we're going to get one. Um, now, that, that may sound odd, right? Why would you hope for a recession? But I actually think that a recession is necessary to reset expectations. And if you look at what's driving inflation... Part of it is this increase in money supply, but part of it also is a change in consumer tastes and expectations. So when I started on Wall Street, uh, you know, for lunch, you'd go to a local deli and you'd get a salad and a salad was $5. And today, if you go to, you know, one of the bespoke salad places, the salad is $15. Now, have we had, uh, you know, have we had a, a 3x increase in pricing since then? No, we've had about a 2x increase in pricing. So what accounts for the other difference? Well, when, when I was an analyst on Wall Street, I was eating iceberg lettuce, right? Or maybe romaine if it was really fancy. And today everyone wants kale and mescaline and different things. So part of it is, is that consumer tastes have changed and there's been a general upgrading of everything. People, it's not good enough to go out for dinner. They want their dinner delivered. And so until we have a recession and it forces people to make those more difficult choices, it's, it's hard to see a sort of resetting expectations. Um, now, will we actually have a recession? If you look at the data today, again, here, you know, sitting in early December of 2022, most of the layoffs we've seen in the economy were, are almost all of them are in the tech industry, which is dramatically overheated uh, because there's been way too many venture dollars chasing uh, far too few good ideas. Um, the rest of the economy, labor markets are still quite tight. Um, and there are a number of causes for this. Um, one of them, uh, I, I hate to sound down today, gosh, but you know, one of them is the fact that we lost, we lost a million citizens to COVID. Um, so, um, you know, there, there's real impact to all of this. And, um, so the labor markets are still really tight. And because of that, um, you know, maybe a recession is necessary. Uh, I, I'm optimistic that I think that, that, that we may be able to, to engineer a soft landing. I was less optimistic a month ago. I think now I, I feel a little more optimistic we'll be able to. But if we do, if we're able to avoid a recession, we may just be kicking the can down the road and we may end up with prolonged inflation. So from a long-term perspective, we may be better off actually forcing a recession to try to get inflation in check. Okay, I want to go back to the question I asked you a little bit ago because I'm not sure you, you completely answered it, but where do you see the Fed stopping with uh, its, its overnight rate, with the interest rates? 
Well, the overnight rate should actually exceed the rate of inflation, right? Otherwise, otherwise you have negative real, real return on dollars. So we're, we're still far from there. Um, I think, you know, we're going to need to see inflation. The, the, the Fed has continuously said that their target is 2% inflation. And earlier in the pandemic, Chairman Powell said that his target was net 2% inflation, which means that we actually should have negative inflation for the next few years to make up for the last two years of, you know, near double digit inflation. I don't think that's going to happen. I think that whatever losses people have suffered due to inflation and the the sort of permanent, the erosion of the value of their dollars that they've saved is permanent. I, I, I don't see us moving to a deflationary environment like Japan because I don't think there's the political will for it. Um, but, you know, from here, Fed funds is in the 375 to four range. The December increase should be bring it up to four to four and a half. I think maybe we'll see quarter point increases beyond that until such time as we see inflation sustainably, uh, you know, drop into the low single digits range. And then maybe maybe there's a reason to just keep rates stable. Maybe they decline. But I, I, I sort of feel like we're in a fairly good place. So I don't know, maybe maybe Fed funds makes it up to five and a half percent and then settles, you know, in the sort of four to five range. Um, but I, I don't see it going back down to zero. And the last question I have for you, I want to ask you why you think the early stages of this inflation, a lot of the politicians were calling it transitory. Um, and then after it wasn't was realized to not be transitory, the response was always, it's a global, inflation is global. How does any of that really matter? I mean, transitory, I understand. Maybe it makes you feel like, okay, this is a temporary thing. But the fact that if people are calling it global, I mean, is that just taking the blame off somebody or is that supposed to make anybody feel better that everybody's paying more for bread and milk? Well, we've been on record for two years now saying that it was never transitory. Two years ago, when, when Chairman Powell first used the word transitory, uh, we disagreed um, respectfully um, for the very simple reason that you can't print $5 trillion of new money and expect it to go nowhere. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it, it's hard to put your, you know, head in the mind of someone else at a different point in time. There's obviously a lot going on with the pandemic. There were lots of unknowns. Um, I think... Uh, most people early in the pandemic would not have predicted that we would have had such effective vaccines so quickly. Um, and our big concern sort of coming out of that first half year of the pandemic was that as people were vaccinated, that there, there had a lot of cash had accumulated in, in people's accounts, not only because of government stimulus checks um, for the sort of mass market, but also, you know, uh, throughout the economy, people were not traveling, they were not going out to dinner, they were not you know, incurring the expense, they were not paying commuting expenses. And so there was a lot of pent up demand and pent up cash. And I think the transitory statements came with the expectation that, okay, the pandemic will end, people will, you know, travel again, they'll take one trip and get that out of their system. And I think what's happened instead, and this is true if you talk to adults or if you talk to, to you know, younger people, teenagers in high school, um, their outlook on life has changed a little bit. They're saying, gosh, you know, this could happen again. I don't want to wait. I don't want to delay that trip. I want to go take that trip with my grandchildren. I want to, you know, uh, spend more, more, save less and spend more. Um, I want more life experiences because who knows what's around the corner. And that change in mentality um, 
that's quasi permanent, uh, at least for this generation. I think, you know, in the future, things will go back, back a little bit more to normal. So I think that some people may have got caught off guard that they thought, okay, we're going to have this temporary spike. That makes sense because people are coming out and going to shows and, you know, going to the movie theater and going out to dinner and, and there's sort of a temporary increase in spending. Um, but because 5 trillion of new money was injected into the economy, that still has to be spent. A lot of it is still sitting on bank balance sheets. I think, you know, the, the banks went from 13.3 trillion to 18.1 trillion. They're now down to 17.7 trillion. So we've worked out 400 million of this, but then means we still have another 4.2 trillion to go or 400 billion, still 4.2 trillion to go. There's a lot more money that's sitting on the sidelines and we may see that plug back into the stock market and there'll be, you know, another leg up after this correction. Uh, we may see that spent, in which case we'll have more inflation. Um, but uh, I think the lesson in all of this is whether it's monetary policy or fiscal policy, we ought to be really careful before we start passing trillion dollar spending bills because it's going to have real ramifications that may be unanticipated. That's a great message to leave our folks with. Um, here's, here's, always, here's been my theme for a while, Gary, on trillions of dollars is I think the problem is that trillions sounds too much like billions and billions sounds too much like millions, all right? <laughs> Somebody made a mistake a long time ago when they named those big, big numbers. Um, the, I, I want to thank you, Gary, for being here. Really good stuff. You, you take complex things and, and make them sound clear and simple and understandable and very helpful for us. So, so thank you very much. Gary Zimmerman, Max, my interest. Uh, good stuff. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you, Jeff. My pleasure. Alrighty, folks, thank you very much for listening. Another episode of the Investment News Podcast. Again, we're going to get uh, Bruce Kelly back here next week. We want to thank our producer, Angelica Hester. And we want to thank you again for listening. Keep listening to us and uh, give us some feedback. Uh, if you want to talk to me on social media, you can get me on Twitter on at Benji Writer. And Bruce Kelly is at BD News Guy. Thank you very much. Talk to you next time.